Father, we uh, come before you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for this time of year. We thank you for the brightness that it brings, even though it is the onset of winter. We would ask that you would help us to bring warmth into the hearts of people that we come in contact with, even though they may be cold towards you. And we know that this can happen, for it has happened throughout the generations since your son Jesus was here. Now, we, we would pray that you would fill us full of wisdom and insight as to what your word says and how the first century church tackled the issues that were before them. May we learn from them and follow in their footsteps. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, in chapter 7, which we just finished, we're going to be going into chapter 8. And if you want to take out your digital Bible or your hardcover Bible, that would be good so you can follow along. And also, I would encourage you, if you don't carry a pen and a paper pad with you to take notes, it's very difficult to remember those things which you have been taught or the insights that God gives you as the message is being read. Uh, at home, when I was under Pastor Dave at Calvary Chapel La Mesa, he would hand out actually outlines on Sunday morning, and I have a file cabinet full of those outlines, and I can always refer back to those. And it's good to refer back to your own notes as well. Whenever I go to... Um, a pastor's conference or a, a retreat of any kind, I usually take a little notebook and I have all those notes that I can go back and I can skim through and say, oh yeah, I remember that and, and take that uh, afresh and anew because I look over my notes. I want to encourage you to do that. Now in chapter 7, Stephen drew several parallels between Joseph and Moses and how Israel rejected the two of them and also rejected the prophets and how that is similar to how they rejected Jesus, the Messiah. And at the end, Stephen gives just a biting condemnation of the Jews, the Sanhedrin and the elders specifically, along with the Pharisees, how they rejected Jesus Christ. And their judgment was sealed in this. And in chapter 8, <clears throat> we're going to see the progression of the Gospels, but we are introduced at the end of chapter 7 to a man who would affect not only everyone in his day and age that would come to Christ, but also throughout all the generations since the church was conceived. And this would be, of course, the Apostle Paul, formerly known as Saul. In Acts chapter 7, verse 58, it says, Meanwhile, the witnesses, when they were stoning Stephen, laid their clothes at the feet of the young man named Saul. Now, how old was Saul at this particular time? Some people think that he was born about 4 to 6 AD. So he would have been almost the same age as Jesus. And when he was doing this, he would have been about 30 years old when he was standing there. And there are several things we're going to learn about him. But in chapter 8, verses 1 through 7, or excuse me, in in the book of Acts, chapters 1 through 7, we have what is described as a period of testing during which the kingdom was offered to Israel and Israel rejected it. And there's all kinds of things going on in the church and people were being judged, Ananias and Sapphira in chapter 5. It was an exciting time and the church was growing and people were getting healed and thousands are being added to the church at that time. And then chapters 8 through 12 describe a period of transition during which changes were taking place where the gospel at first was going to Israel and then Saul comes on the scene and he ends up becoming the apostles to the Gentiles. He is the only one. Peter was the apostle to the Jews and Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles. And we see the activities 
moving from Jerusalem to Antioch. We see the message going from the Jews to the Samaritans. We see the the authority going from Peter to Paul, at least he becomes the main focus of the rest of the book of Acts. And then the gospel of the kingdom is replaced by the gospel of grace. And and that's the transition that we see taking place here. Now, how did this gospel move out? Where did it go? It was all as a result of persecution, which we will see here as we get into it. And, and persecution is something that God uses in order to transfer people from one place to another. He, he gets them where he wants them to be because normally we become complacent. We become satisfied with where we are. We're nice and comfortable until something comes along to make us uncomfortable. And we have to get up. We have to change. We have to think what we're doing. Are we just sitting there getting all warm and comfy and not doing what the Lord has called us to do. Well, in this particular case, the Lord used that persecution to get the people out of Jerusalem. And they started moving north to Antioch and Antioch became the hub of the church instead of Jerusalem. So we're going to pick it up in Acts chapter eight in verse one. It says, and Saul was there giving his approval to his death, referring to Stephen and him being stoned, are stoned. And now this is the first mention of Saul back in seven, chapter seven, verse fifty-nine, and he is the author of estimated thirteen books of the New Testament. He is the most prolific author that wrote the New Testament. And who is Saul? You know, what kind of character is this guy? Uh, if you tried to describe what he looked like, there are some musings by some people that he was probably. A little short, bow-legged, probably bald head, skinny, and he probably had an eye disease or ailment that he was constantly dealing with, and he wasn't very much to look at as far as being an impressive speaker or anything like that, but he was used powerfully by God. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews, according to Second Corinthians 11.22 and Philippians 3, verse 5. He was born of two Jewish parents in Tarshish. He was called the son of a Pharisee in the book of Acts. He would be known thoroughly, or he would have known thoroughly the Old Testament and the oral traditions of his fathers. He was very zealous for them. The oral traditions were what the rabbis, they would sit down and they would concoct ideas of what it meant to fulfill the Old Testament law. And that was turned into what is known as the Mishnah. Now, it was an oral tradition, and then they put it down in writing with the Mishnah. And there are other writings as well that they can refer to. But he would have been completely familiar with all the habits and practices of the fathers that were not in the scriptures. He was also a Roman citizen. He was educated by uh, Gamaliel in Jerusalem. He was, and Gamaliel was an interesting uh, individual. He was the grandson of Hillel. And during the time of Hillel, there was also this guy by the name of Shammai. Now, Shammai had a more rigorous interpretation of the Old Testament, and Hillel, he was a little more, I would say, progressive. He was lighter on some of the judgments that were there. <clears throat> and permitting divorce or not permitting divorce, the two were in disagreement on what that meant in the Old Testament. And, and so Paul comes from that lineage under Gamaliel, and he knew everything. He was regarded as a great teacher. We already read about Gamaliel, how he stood up for the apostles so they would not be killed. He said that in front of the Sanhedrin, that if you 
kill these men, you're going to be fighting against God if God has sent them. But if they are just men doing their own thing, they will go away. And he gives examples of how people came up and they were supposed to be something, and it turned out to be nothing. And so Gamaliel gave that counsel to the people that were the rulers in Jerusalem, and they followed it. They simply beat the apostles, and they went on from there. He was a devoted Pharisee, and if he measured, uh, if he was measured by the law, his life was completely blameless. Philippians chapter three, verses four through six says, "If anyone else thinks he has reason to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, and for zeal, persecuting the church, as for legalistic righteousness, flawless." So if you transferred that to somebody who was a Christian, now he was a Jew, if you said that, well, that's a Christian, well, he gets up and has a devotion every morning, starts at 4.30 a.m., prays for at least an hour and reads about six chapters, both in the Old Testament and New Testament, and he shows up and just walks around the church and prays for the church and prays for everybody in the church all the time and is at every single service and serves inside the body of Christ all the time and is available for any visitation or doing any prayer time or whatever the case might be, volunteers for everything that's what paul would be saying about himself as he if he was a christian as opposed to being a jew a pharisee now how many of us live up to that ideal i don't even live up to that ideal you know it's very difficult to do that but paul was one of these guys that was completely sold out and completely disciplined he was the most promising or one of the most promising young pharisees in jerusalem and he was well on his way to becoming a great leader for the Jewish faith. He was responsible for a great deal of death and suffering for those who called themselves Christians. He caused Christians to blaspheme and deny Jesus Christ. And he was an author, like I said previously, of about 13 books of the New Testament. And he became the apostle to the Gentiles somewhere between the ages of 62 to 68. He was beheaded in Rome, probably due to the persecution of Nero that uh, he hated the Christians and there's several stories that you could get into about that but he was beheaded during that time and half of the book of Acts is committed to Paul the Apostle and he's responsible for outline most of the doctrine and practices of the Christian church everything that we do really is centered on the writings of Paul everything that we practice the theological bents that we have whether eschatology or salvation because he did Romans Romans is a treatise on election and predestination and the gift of grace that God has for us all of those things Paul is the one responsible to for delivering that to us and so verse 1 again says, And Saul was there giving his approval uh, to the death of Stephen. Now, uh, naturally, this would arise for us some questions. You have Stephen. This is a young man who was one of the seven. He was a deacon. And remember, a deacon is one who waits on tables. Very promising. He had a bright future ahead of him as far as the ministry is concerned. And all of a sudden... God allows him to be killed right in his prime. He's doing a fantastic work. And that raises the idea in most people's minds of why would God allow this to happen to somebody who is so promising for the kingdom that could be used? Why would God do that? And he was so blessed in how he was serving. And can you imagine the rest of the people who are around there saying, oh, what a loss he is for the entire body. And, you know, Augustine said, the church owes Paul to the prayer of Stephen. 
Because Stephen, when he was being stoned, he said back in chapter 7, do not hold this against them, those who were stoning him. And Paul, of course, was giving his approval to this. And we can be assured that Paul would have been impacted by such a faith that Stephen possessed. And his actual words were, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. In verse 60 of Acts chapter 7, then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep. So Paul would have been, Saul at the time, would have been standing right there, seeing what's going on, seeing the face of Stephen's probably still bright, looking up to heaven, sees heaven being opened, and Paul is witnessing all of this, and then he says, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Now, what kind of love is that? Do I think that Paul had that kind of love? No, I don't. I, I don't think he possessed that at this particular point. Would he have remembered that? Would he have been remorseful after his conversion that Jesus actually met him on the road to Damascus? Oh, that would have come flooding back after that and the tremendous weight of guilt of having participated in that would have been overwhelming for him then the second half of verse one says on that day a great persecution broke out against the church at jerusalem and all except the apostles were scattered throughout judea and samaria godly men buried stephen and mourned deeply for him but saul began to destroy the church going from house to house he dragged off men and women put them in prison those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Now, where would they have gone? You know, in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, it says they will be the witnesses for Jesus Christ in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria. Well, when the persecution started, these individuals, these disciples of Jesus went to Judea and also to Samaria, and they eventually would have gone north to the northern kingdom up in the area of Galilee, back up in there. Now, to get there, if you were in Jerusalem, Jerusalem was in the area known as Judea. Right above Judea was the area known as Samaria. Samaria went from the coastline all the way to the River Jordan. And from Samaria, above that was what would be known as the northern kingdom. Now, this persecution caused them to leave Jerusalem and they were going in all different directions and they were preaching the word wherever they went. Now, I've mentioned this book in years past, the book Vanya about a Russian soldier who got saved during the Cold War. And it's a wonderful book, a wonderful testimony of this guy. And he had visions and experiences that were recorded in the book that he told his family about. And the family made sure that those, those stories were transferred to the book. And if you get the book and read it, you find out that he was so effective in his witness that his entire platoon, or maybe it was his company, if you're not familiar with military jargon, you have a squad, which is five to nine people. You have a platoon, which is 21 to 35. You have a company, which is 50 to 160. And so he probably was an influence on his company. His company would have been in the same barracks there. Maybe it was only 35 to 50. We don't know. But he had an effect on several of these individuals. Matter of fact, in the book, uh, it seems as if everyone in his platoon or in his company was saved. And what did they do to try to keep the message from going out? They took the individuals and scattered them all over Russia. 
that's exactly what God would want so that all those people, just like the persecution in Jerusalem, it would go to all the points in Russia where all these men went and they would tell the story about Vanya. And that's a true story, like I said, that took place during the Cold War. And the persecution is a catalyst that God can use to spread the gospel. And, and so we are adverse to persecution. We don't like it. We like our comfort. But God has other plans for that. And, and when you take all those people and you scatter them out, it, it's like the word says in Matthew chapter 13, the parable of the sower, the seed. The seed is the word of God, right? But somebody has to be the seed carrier. Now, in my industry, I buy seed by the 25 or 50 pound bag. I buy a couple different kinds of seed. Normally, it's a, a dwarf fescue uh, seed or it's a creeping red fescue. And I use the combination of that in shady areas because it grows really, really well. And whenever it rains, you want to put some of that down because the electrons inside the rain, they cause that seed to germinate a little better. And when you grab a bucket of that seed, normally you take it and you just scatter it out there with your hand. Or you use a device a, to like a drop spreader or a whirlybird spreader and you get it out there. And when I did this this last time, I did it just a couple of weeks ago and the rains came through, I came back and I go, whoa, look at all that seed that has come up. But somebody has to put it down. You are the seed carriers. You have a pouch that contains seed and you're supposed to grab your hand in there and throw it out. Now, do you throw it out only in one area or do you go out and throw it everywhere? Speaking rhetorically or excuse me, metaphorically about the gospel. Do you just take the gospel to those who you know inside your family circle or just in your own yard? Well, yeah, you would do that. But do you go beyond that? That's what persecution does. If you go somewhere else, you're going to have contact with other people and you can take that seed and you can throw that seed out. During Christmas time, Thanksgiving, you're going to have that opportunity to meet extended family and friends, possibly, and you can tell them the reason for the season, which is Jesus. I, I noticed, um, what, what is the guy's name? Uh, Tim Allen, Tool Time, uh, that guy, and does the Santa Claus series. Uh, he was getting some uh, flack for describing Christmas as a tradition that focuses on Jesus the Christ. People were pushing back against that, like, you can't be saying that type of thing. And he goes, well, that's what it is. We are in a country, this is a specifically a Christian celebration, and the world is trying to turn it into something else. How many people have you said Merry Christmas to when you've been out shopping? I try to make a point to do that. And I don't think one person has turned back and said, Merry Christmas to you as well. They always say, oh, and same to you. And happy holidays. You know, that's what they feel that it might be offensive and they can't say that too loudly or to too many people. But Christmas is a decisively Christian celebration in our country and in many parts of the world. Now, some people would poo-poo that and they would say no it's an uh, ancient pagan ritual of Saturnalia and it has to do with the Norse god and that's who Santa was and you don't have to believe all that we know what it represents in this country and that's what we want to point to especially for the sake of other people but God will use this idea of persecution as a catalyst to get the gospel out there and at this point God leaves the 12 in Jerusalem the 12 apostles 
But they're still trying to reach the fellow Jews, these 12 apostles. And I'm sure the miracles are continuing, but everybody else scatters out. Now, again, they would scatter to Judea, south of Jerusalem. Jerusalem was in the top of Judea. Then they went to Samaria. And we're going to find out that Philip here, his name is mentioned 15 times in this chapter. Philip was another one who was waiting on tables, and God used him in the same way he was using Stephen. And it was a marvelous thing. And then with these guys going out like that, we also want to think about in the Old Testament, did God use this persecution to get people where he wanted them to be in the Old Testament? Well, he did. Like, for instance, all the people that here that are in existence today come from one man, not Adam, but Noah. Noah and his wife and his three sons and his three daughters-in-law, they're the ones that repopulated the earth after the flood. Now, you have to get some kind of idea of what was going on during that time. Of course, the flood came, and Noah was a preacher of righteousness for a 100 years. He was a preacher, not one single convert except for his family. But he was faithful to God and do what he had appointed him to do. And once they landed, after about a, a full year, because the water's receding and the rain that came down and they came out, well, the, the three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, they were around for about another hundred years. And then I think it was Japheth who had a son, or Foxad, I, th- I think is how you pronounce his name. <clears throat> and that was a couple of years after they had landed. Well, once they had landed, these three men went to different areas. You had Shem that was from the area of Turkey down into the area of Saudi Arabia and Israel, a little bit on the side, the Horn of Africa around in there, and a little bit to the east. And then uh, uh, Japheth, he went to the north. He would be the area of Germany and the Soviet Union or Russia up in there and he was the one that populated that area and then you had ham or the hamites that would have gone down to the area of africa so god had determined where they would be and they probably would not have gone to those areas had it not been for the flood well what about drought has drought ever moved people we know that it has jacob and his 12 sons remember that joseph went to israel and because he went excuse me went down to egypt and when uh, jacob went down to egypt to see his son joseph because of the famine and they settled in the land of goshen and after 400 years of captivity then they went back But God wanted them to go down to be multiplied in the area of Goshen because it was so fertile down there. God had a plan for that, and it took a drought to get them down there. Well, what about uh, most more recent than that? What was the impetus of the Jews becoming a nation again, getting back into their land? It was World War II. Some things transpired after World War II. There was already already a Zionist movement, uh, Jews who wanted to make Israel their homeland again. It was already in Israel. But after World War II, Ben-Gurion and all these people started coming back into Israel. And then there was a few battles that took place. And, of course, May 14th, 1948, that's when Israel declared its independence. And God was moving to have that happen. But it was World War II that actually brought this about. That was the catalyst. Well, what about for us? God may move us because of hardship. How bad will it have to be in California before you say, I am done? 
I'm out of here. Will it be the taxes being raised? Will it be the, uh, the social economic environment that's here that is taking place where it becomes so difficult to live? You know, they want to restrict your travel. Let me give you a little sidebar on this. You know, the, the climate change people, I've been listening to people talk about this. What is their goal? Actually, what do they want to accomplish? What is the end run? What do they point to and say, this is what we want to do? Is it simply getting rid of fossil fuels? Is that what it is? Is it simply making you eat insects instead of beef? Is that what it is? When you get down to the end, they're actually wanting to get rid of a lot of the population. They want the earth not to be just clean, they want no human impact on the earth, which means we have to have less people. And so the ones who are pushing the climate change, now there are the, uh, the common people. They think it's just saving the planet earth. But there are those who are in charge, and you have to listen to those who are in charge. They want the earth to have no more than a billion people. How are they going to accomplish this? Well, just keep watching and you'll see how they are starting to implement this. One of the people I was listening to on this, they want to restrict the fossil fuels, especially in places like Africa, which will reduce the amount of food that is produced, which will lead to starvation of the people. And nobody is talking about that. And this is on the horizon. Has there been any government ever in the past that has starved people on purpose. Russia did that with Ukraine. They cut off all the grain in Ukraine. Millions died. They starved to death in Ukraine. And guess who was behind it and making it look real rosy and, and just putting out the propaganda like, this is okay, this is good. It was the New York Times that did that. And I, we saw a movie about that recently. And it, it's unbelievable the evil that is in the world that would perpetrate this stuff. And so persecution is coming, yes, but when that persecution comes, are you going to stay put? Did God tell you to remain like the 12 apostles in Jerusalem? Or is God telling you to go out somewhere? And I want you to just tuck that away. Because will things get worse? Well, you know, I'll probably talk about some of this stuff after January 1st. You know, what lies ahead, what you can anticipate, what do you think is on the horizon? There are several things that are out there that people are talking about that are potential for us, and we want to be ready, not not to be frightful or fearful, just to be prepared. And, And if we're prepared, God will use us. But if we're unprepared, it's going to take us by surprise. And that's why we even have the end time scenario, the eschatology that is going to take place. God told us it was going to get worse. And so we'll just be prepared. But God uses persecution to get us to where he wants us to be. And so now we turn to Philip. Now, Philip was known as Philip the Evangelist in verse 5. It says, Philip went down to the city in Samaria and proclaimed the Christ there. When the crowds heard Philip and saw the miraculous signs he did, They all paid close attention to what he said. With shrieks, evil spirits came out of many, and many paralytics and cripples were healed. There was great joy in that city. Now, you have to have context of what's going on here. You have Judea on the bottom, with Jerusalem right at the top of Judea. Then you have Samaria, and then above that you have the region of Galilee. And this is a result of 
first there being two kingdoms. If you remember the sons of Solomon, you had Rehoboam and Jeroboam. Rehoboam said, I'm going to impose all kinds of taxes on you. And the people were asking, you know, what are you going to do? Are you going to treat us good? If you will, we'll get behind you. But Rehoboam listened to his young counselors instead of the old counselors from the father Solomon. And he said, no, I'm going to tax you and it's going to be burdensome for you and you're not going to like it. As a result of that, 10 tribes went to the north. And that's the area of Galilee, all the way up to the city of Dan. And then two tribes, Judah and Benjamin, were left in the south. And they became two separate kingdoms. Rehoboam in the south was the king. Jeroboam to the north was the king. And from Jeroboam on, there was not a single good or righteous king that did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. There was a couple down in Judea. But for the most part, they were two separate kingdoms. And because the northern kingdom, Jeroboam, led the people into idolatry in the city of Dan, they have a mock-up altar that's made out of aluminum. You can see it up there where the altar would have been, where they were sacrificing to false gods and even the worship of Molech. All that was taking place in the northern kingdom. And so after a period of time, God said, I am not satisfied with this. And he rose up a kingdom, the Assyrian kingdom, to come down in the 8th century BC and took the Israelites in the northern kingdom captive. So the northern kingdom was called Israel. The southern kingdom was called Judah. And so those people were taken captive to Assyria and they were a brutal people. They would do things like put rings in the lips of people and tie a string to that and be on the horse and the person would be tied. They would be bound, but they would have to walk behind the horse. And if they fell down or fell behind, that ring would pull out the lip. That was one of the things that they did. And they they were just brutal to the people. Well, after that, a couple of centuries later in the 6th century BC, Babylon came down to Judea and they took away the captives in three phases from Judea. So God judged both the southern and northern kingdom. Well, if you remember, when the Babylonians were taken captive, they were there for 70 years. And after 70 years, this guy pops up and we know he is Nehemiah. And Nehemiah, he goes down to the area of Jerusalem. He gets permission from uh, uh, Artaxerxes and he is able to rebuild the walls and starts on the temple construction as well. When that was taken place... The northern kingdom, Israelites, you know, they were taken away to Assyria. Well, Assyria's habit was to bring in their own people and populate the land that they just conquered. And if you wanted to marry somebody, well, you had to marry somebody in the land. So what happened was the Jews were marrying people from Assyria and they became what was known as, quote, half-breeds. And they were not accepted by the Jews down south. When Nehemiah showed up to build the temple and the walls, They came down, which were known as the Samaritans. They were the people who were half Assyrian and half Jew. They came down to Nehemiah and said, we wanted to help. Nehemiah said, nope, this is for the people of God. You guys are not full Jews. And so this animosity started to build between them. And there's this conflict. You just have to read uh, the book of Nehemiah and you can see that conflict which is taking place there. And so... 
Whenever anything was going on with the Jews, they would exclude the Samaritans. And so what did the Samaritans do? The Samaritans said, well, that's it. We're done with you guys as well. We're going to build our own temple, which is just like the temple in Jerusalem on Mount Gerizim. And we're going to worship up there. And we're going to change the story a little bit too. Abraham did not sacrifice his son or attempt to sacrifice his son Isaac in Jerusalem. He tried to sacrifice his son on Mount Gerizim. So they tried to move everything north they said that is the center of worship now that is the place that jesus went to remember the disciples were coming through that area with jesus to get to the northern district of galilee and they had to pass through the town of samaria which was the capital of the area of samaria and he met a woman there remember that woman he he said bring your husband and she said i have no husband he says you are absolutely correct in that you've had like five husbands and the one you have now is not your own husband and she says sir i perceive that you are a prophet and he he said i am he the one who's talking to you and she went back into the town of samaria and just explained to everybody that this is the messiah the one that we're waiting for and the whole town came out and listened to him and many people got saved at that point and then he goes on to the area of the district of Galilee. Well, what did Philip do? Philip said, you know, Jesus did this. We're being persecuted. I'm going to Samaria. So he went to Samaria and many miracles took place there. And it really says like the whole town came out and they were filled with joy. So Philip was following in the steps of Jesus. He did what Jesus did. And when the, uh, the, Deacons or the servants of Christ or the apostles do what Jesus did. We're supposed to do what the servants and the apostles of Jesus did just like Jesus. We're to follow the succession. And that's where Philip was completely successful in reaching those people. The signs, the casting out demons, they healed, he healed the paralytics. It was fantastic setting that was there but that is the history of the area and the jews did not accept the samaritans if a uh, like a levite or a uh, pharisee wanted to avoid the area and they wanted to go to the district of galilee what they'd have to do is go north and then head east to go beyond the river jordan cross to the north from that point and then head back over to the area of galilee they could do that Some of the Jews would just walk through and they wouldn't have anything to do with the Samaritans, not stopping, not getting any food, not doing anything in that area. So there was this animosity that was going in there. And like I said, the kingdom to the north, they wanted to change the story with Mount Gerizim and the temple that was there. And that's just what the Muslims do with the Temple Mount. They say that Abraham did not try to sacrifice Isaac. Abraham tried to sacrifice Ishmael. And that's where the Muslims break off from Abraham. The Jews go in one direction with Isaac and the Muslims go the other direction with Ishmael. And, and that's what exists today uh, in the area of Israel with the Muslims. Now, uh, there is a principle that is here. You have Philip. He was a waiter on tables. That's what he did. And then God took him and put him up in Samaria. And he started performing miracles, signs, wonders, people being healed. And it was a fantastic thing that took place. But he was, he just waited on tables, picked up plates, so to speak, you know, brought food to people. He was just faithful in the little things. And if we are faithful in the little things, God will allow us to be faithful in much. He will give us more responsibility. And when this gospel goes out, especially in this area of Samaria, as we're reading about, uh, 
and these people are getting healed and wherever you go wherever whatever church you're in or whatever destination you go to to give the gospel maybe there's somebody gets saved but there's always going to be this one guy this one guy who's kind of going to be a thorn in your flesh the one who's going to want to go in another direction and want to change the course of either the gospel or the church and that person's going to have to be dealt with we've had people like that in this church uh, I have a couple of stories of things that people wanted to do and I had to say no we're not going in that direction well there's a guy like this when Philip is doing his thing called by God up in Samaria there's this guy that shows up his name is Simon Simon Magnus or Simon the magician or Simon the sorcerer and this is in verse 9 it says now for some time a man named Simon had practiced sorcery in the city and this city is Samaria and amazed all the people of Samaria he boasted that he was someone great and all the people both high and low gave him their attention and exclaimed this man is the divine power known as the great power they followed him because he amazed them for a long time with his magic now this guy was a member of the cult he could do these magic tricks now this is not the first time we've seen somebody who is adept at doing magic now how do you do magic it it is not simply you you know pulling out a little magic trick I, i have a trick where i make two coins become one and it's just one coin i can hold it there I do these things for my grandkids and little kids, and it's a lot of fun to do that. Have you ever uh, reached up to a little child's ear and pulled out a coin and you say, oh, it's right there, then put it back in their ear or swallow it and have it appear somewhere else? You know, you do those little tricks. It's like magic. That's just illusion. This was magic. Now, this is not the first time. If you remember the Janus and Jambres are supposed to be the two magicians that were in the Old Testament that opposed Moses, and what were they able to do? Turn sticks into snakes. They did that. Wow. I don't know if you can do that. I can't do that. Moses was able to do that. And that was a miracle. And his snake ate the other two snakes. And he picked back up the snake by the tail and it turned back into a stick. Now, if you're doing that, that's magic. That's something that comes from the occult. And Simon was able to do some of these things. He was so revered that there was said to be even a statue in Rome dedicated to this guy, Simon. And he was even considered by some to be a god. And that's what we just read. It said, this man is the divine power known as the great power. So he was worshipped by some because of what he could do. Now, in the second century, there was a couple of church historians that write about this guy. We don't have much about him in scripture. We have a little bit. But he was also from the city of Samaria. That's where he was. And there was this guy named Justin Martyr that wrote about him. And the things that he had to say was the statue that was in uh, Rome and how some in Rome considered him a deity. There was also Irenaeus in the second century said that he was responsible. He was the one that founded Gnosticism. And Gnosticism is a cult. It goes away from the gospel. They are mixing all kinds of things into it. It's similar to the Jews having the Kabbalah. There's this mysticism that is there. And that's what Gnosticism was. And he was said to be responsible for that, according to Arrhenius. 
Now, in verse 12, it says, But when they believed, Philip, as he preached the good news of the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Simon himself believed and was baptized, and he followed Philip everywhere, astonished by the great signs and the miracles that he saw. So he could do his own magic, but he saw Philip doing these incredible things. And so he followed him, and he was just astonished. Like, how do you do this? He was looking for the miracles. He, he was more placing trust in the miracles rather than placing trust in God or in specifically Jesus Christ. Now, later, I think we can question his salvation. Was he really saved? We're not sure. But Simon, the sorcerer, he was following just, it, it appears, for the fact that he wanted the power that the apostles had. And the apostles were called up to the area of Samaria because Philip was doing all these miracles. People were getting saved, but they decided to call in the big guns, so to speak. And when the apostles in Jerusalem, verse 14, heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them. When they arrived, they prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit had not yet come on any of them. They had simply been baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John placed their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. Now, it's interesting that John is one of them that went up there. Do you remember what John said about the area of Samaria, the people that were there? It's recorded for us in Luke chapter 9, in verses 51 through 56. It says there, at this time approached, or excuse me, as the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem, and he sent messengers on ahead who went into a Samaritan village to get things ready for them. But the people there did not welcome him because he was heading for Jerusalem. Again, there's this animosity there. You're a Jew and you're going to Jerusalem. Why don't you go ahead and stay here? I'll be done with you. When the disciples, James and John saw this, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven and destroy them? This is the apostle John, the apostle of love, the sons of thunder. They wanted to destroy the Samaritans. And what's he doing next? He's going up there praying for them to receive the Holy Spirit. They get baptized in the Holy Spirit. And and it's just a fantastic story of conversion. It's where God changes the heart of John and James as well. There doesn't need to be fire coming down from heaven to destroy these people, to teach them a lesson. God wants to reach them by the power of the Holy Spirit. And this this is something that is good. The Samaritans who rejected Jesus and the disciples who are up there, the apostles, they got a second chance. God sent them through Philip, sent Philip by the Holy Spirit to Samaria to reach these people. God wanted them saved as well. Let's go on with the story here. Verse 18. When Simon saw that the spirit was given at the laying on of the apostles' hand, he offered them money and said, give me this ability so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Peter answered, may your money perish with you because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. You have no part or share in this ministry because your heart is not right before God. Repent of this wickedness and pray to the Lord. Perhaps he will forgive you for having such a thought in your heart. For I see that you were full of bitterness and captive to sin. You know, there is a word that has been coined as a result of this guy. 
and it's called simony. Simony is the act of buying your position in the church. This happened in the past. There was one, even the position of being a pope. Pope Benedict IX sold his position to Benedict VI for a sum of money. And this idea of paying money to get a position in the church is called simony. It's a, it's a clever way that somebody who is wicked would use to rise to a position of power. Kind of like politicians, they do the same thing. They buy their way into positions of power. But in the church, it's particularly egregious. And this is so egregious, there are different um, translations of the Bible. Of course, you know that. But in this one particular translation, J.D. Phillips, or J.B. Phillips, the translation of the Bible, takes this particular passage, and this is what it says. But Peter said to him, to hell with you and your money. How dare you think you could buy the gift of God? You think Peter would have been a little upset with him trying to buy this power to get the Holy Spirit? You know, we we have nothing to offer God that God would bless us. We can't go to him and say, you know, I have this or I've done this particular act. Will you bless me because of that? God doesn't bargain. God does what he wants to do at his prerogative. That's his providence over creation. That's his care over who we are. God doesn't move his hand favorably over us based on what we do. God just gives us his grace because of who he is. And Simon had gotten that wrong. Now, God will reward us for self, selfless works done with no ulterior motives. And that is to glorify God. If we just step out there and do things for God, not wanting anything in return, not wanting any praise delivered to us, God will bless us for that because we don't want anything. It's the person who is qualified for ministry is the person who really doesn't want to do the ministry. And they could be the exact one that God would call. Now, in the case of an elder, um, the Bible says it's noble for a person to desire that particular position. That's good. But you shouldn't seek after it. It is God who calls the individual to do it. You can't stand up and say, you know, I'm going to do this. I'll, I'll train and do whatever I have to do to be in the position of elder. It's the same thing with any position in ministry. We don't do it because we desire it. It's God who puts the desire in us. And then he affirms that he has done that. And he's the one that appoints those people who lead. Now in verse 22, again, it says, repent of this wickedness and pray to the Lord. Perhaps he will forgive you for having such a thought in your heart. For I see that you are full of bitterness and captive to sin. So this bitterness, bitterness is something that we should never let a root of develop in our hearts. And bitterness is something that we, we become soured towards an individual or a group of people where we just hate them. We can't stand them. It's kind of like um, the Muslims in the area of the West Bank and Gaza Strip. They not only hate the Jews, but they teach their children to hate the Jews as well with this just bitterness, this bitter acrimony, which is uh, so evident if you've seen any videos of that area where they deal with the Jews. And even the uh, 
the secular world. They hate the Jews and they hate the Christians and some of them do so with great bitterness. And God tells us, do not let a root of bitterness grow up in any one of us. We're to deal with that and get rid of hatred. And scripture, First John says, you can't hate your brother and claim that you love God. That is impossible. You are not a believer if you think you belong to Christ and you have this root of bitterness. He says, get rid of it. Or it is also referred to as a gall of bitterness and gall is produced in the gallbladder and it's something that is real bitter and of course the liver can take over that function and and do that as well but this is a superlative that is used here and it's excessive bitterness now what would that bitterness have been it's probably the fact that simon looked at what philip was doing with getting all of these followers performing all of these miracles and he wanted that same thing and he was jealous and bitter and thought that he could end up purchasing that particular power and he was not able to do so and he was condemned for it so was he saved was he not saved i have a tendency to think that maybe he wasn't but god is the one who judges the heart all we can see is what is on the outside verse 24 then simon answered pray to the lord for me so that nothing you have said may happen to me when they had testified and proclaimed the word of the Lord, Peter and John returned to Jerusalem preaching the gospel in many Samaritan villages. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, go south to the road, the desert road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he started out and on his way he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of the treasury of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship and on his way home was sitting in his chariot, reading the book of Isaiah, the prophet, the spirit told Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. So he shows up, he sees this chariot, this guy of some importance was on the chariot, and God says, go talk to him. And so he goes, okay, and he heads off towards the chariot, walks right up to it, says, hey, do you know what you're reading? Because he was reading it out loud. And he goes, well, how do I know what it says unless somebody teaches me? It goes on to say, then Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. Do you understand what you're reading? Philip asked. How can I, he said, unless someone explains it to me. So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. The eunuch was reading the passage or this passage of scripture. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before the shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. The eunuch asked Philip, Please tell me, who is the prophet talking about himself or someone else? Then Philip began with that very passage of scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. As they traveled along the road, they came to some water and the eunuch said, look, here is water. Why shouldn't I be baptized? And he gave orders to stop the chariot and both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water and Philip was baptized. You know, these instant conversions that you see in the New Testament, it's still possible to have those today. If the Holy Spirit is talking to you to talk to somebody, open your mouth and you never know. That person might get saved right there on the spot. So this Ethiopian eunuch was a Gentile. He was not a Jew. He was a proselyte to Judaism and he was reading his own copy of the Old Testament if you were a Gentile you were not allowed to have your own copy even if you proselytized into the Jewish religion so he was a man of some means that was reading these, uh, these scriptures the scroll that he had 
And in order to become a proselyte, there's a couple of things that you had to have. You needed to be instructed in the word. You had to go through circumcision. You had to have full immersion in a mikvah. A mikvah is like a little jacuzzi-sized tub that the water goes up to about the uh, level of the chest. And the Jews used that for purposes of cleansing or purity. It was a a symbolic act that they were going through. So the Jews had baptism at that time, but it was Philip who baptized this eunuch in order to him to be buried with Christ. That's how we identify with it. The Jews did it for cleansing. We do it to identify with Christ. First death, then burial, then resurrection. You go in the water, that symbolizes death. Burial under the water and resurrected, you come back out of the water. And this points us in the direction of having a new life, living that new life that we have received, just like Jesus was raised from death to life. That's what it symbolizes for us. And it should be a public thing that we do. It's, it's not something that should be hidden. And if somebody is here that hasn't been baptized, you should get baptized. I, I can't tell you how many times I've run into people that, oh, when did you get saved? 30 years ago. When were you baptized? Well, you know, just haven't had the opportunity. In the New Testament, it was like instant. We have a bathtub. If somebody wants to get saved or they haven't been baptized, we can put you in the bathtub. It's cold water. The hot water heater's not working. But it'll be an exhilarating experience for anyone who goes through that. But God says, get baptized. So what are we to make of all of this? You know, I could have focused everything on Philip because he was mentioned 15 times here. Could have done a whole message on him. But there is a message about the dispersal through persecution of the gospel going to places. The gospel is going out. And when it goes out, we will encounter people like Simons who are out there who may seem genuine at first, but probably are not genuine and actually start to cause problems. And then there's this idea of listening to the leading of the Holy Spirit. When you get together with family at Christmas time or friends or you have an acquaintance that you start to talk with, pay attention to what the Lord may be telling you. Just, Lord, are you telling me something? Do you want me to do something? you want me to say something? And then the fact that there are people that God gives a second chance to, like the Samaritans. The Samaritans and the Jews, they had completely rejected each other. And Jesus was concerned about giving them the gift of of salvation. If you are faithful in doing these things, God will give you more responsibility. Luke 16 verse 10 says, whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So Philip is our example. He was a waiter on tables and God used him mightily to bring the gospel to those who need it. That is my prayer for all of you. That not only at Christmas time, but for all of the next year, that God would give you the grace to speak up when he speaks to you, when you hear his voice, that you would give words of comfort and direction, even words of encouragement and admonishment if necessary, but that you would open your mouth, and especially with those in your own household, be a witness, but those who are outside your own household. May God give you the grace and the wisdom and the strength to do that. Let's pray. Father... We thank you for the testimony of both Stephen and Philip. May we have just a little bit of the blessing that you have given to them. The power, Lord, that you provided for them, we know is in us. May you help us to subdue our wills when we resist your promptings. But Lord, may you put people in our path that we might share the gospel with just as Stephen and Philip did. Be a testimony of who you are. 
We thank you for your message that you have delivered to us. In Jesus' name, and the church said, Amen. Amen. Please stand.